verse 13, Genesis chapter 39, verse 13. We'll read it down to the end of the chapter, 11 verses in all, to chapter 39 and verse 23. But we begin in verse 13, Genesis 39 and verse 13. says, And it came to pass, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass, when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came unto me to mock me. And it came to pass I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the, the, all the prisoners that were there in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not unto anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his eternal and inspired word. Now you'll recall that we left Joseph fleeing the temptation of Potiphar's wife. And as he ran from her presence, uh, she lay hold on his garment, his uh, many-colored coat, and uh, she held on to it as he fled the room. And now Joseph is about to discover the truth of that well-known idiom, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Having had her advances firmly rebuffed. Potiphar's wife now decides to save face, and this she does by crying rape. You know, the, the result of that is that Joseph is to be charged with this terrible crime. He's going to be wrongfully arrested, and he's going to spend ten grinding years of unlawful imprisonment. This episode in Joseph's life is very, very telling. Though in his heart he must have despaired he must surely have felt somewhat hard done by that life just isn't fair you'll not hear him offer even one single word of complaint this is the remarkable thing about joseph you never find him uh, complaining even though there is no one coming to his aid there is no amnesty international petitioning for his release no early release scheme for him. Uh, there's nobody raising his profile in the media. No family members are outside the prison with placards. No investigative journalists are looking into his wrongful arrest. And yet, though he's ill-treated, and though he's alone in a foreign country, in a foreign prison, in a great calamity, he is completely surrendered to the will 
of God for his life and utterly convinced of God's goodness in his life even when life goes belly up. Notice in verses 13 to 18 how he was falsely accused. It came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought him in Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. Now, sleeping with Potiphar's wife really would have been the easy route for Joseph to have taken, but he resisted, and his resistance, as we have seen, created tremendous resentment with Potiphar's wife. You know, there are those who view sexual activity as a merely physical matter between two consenting adults, but people who believe that are really deceiving themselves, regardless of how the world perceives it, regardless how Hollywood presents it. Our sexuality is married to our spirituality, so you cannot divorce the physical from the emotional. When the writer coined the phrase in 1697, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, he was making a pertinent observation of life. Often the satisfaction of sexual passion or the inability to gratify our lusts is followed by an intense anger or disgust. Here we find Mrs. Potiphar as she's left holding this coat. For her, this is not a satisfactory outcome. She is, is, is ashamed. She's suffered this stinging rebuke at the hands of her servant. She feels foolish. She feels degraded. She feels belittled. She feels undervalued. She's acutely embarrassed, but at no time... In no time at all, her humiliation turns to hostility, and she wants revenge. On another occasion, in a very different time, the lust is satisfied, but the same intense anger follows and rises to the boil. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, you can read the story of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon is crazy about Tamar. He's infatuated with his half-sister. He's head over heels in love with her, and he wants to lie with her. And so he feigns illness, and he secures her sympathies as she's trying to minister to him, and he tries to seduce her. But when she refuses him, he finally forces her against her will. And having satisfied his own lust, does he continue in his infatuation? Does he continue to love her? He does not. He feels nothing but contempt and disgust toward her. Indeed, the Bible explicitly states that Amnon hated her. It says then, Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. Look at the contempt he has for her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me. Listen to what he does. And bolt the door 
after her. He has used her and now he dispenses with her like she's a piece of rubbish. Well, Potiphar's wife was equally angry with Joseph. She hated him. Why did she hate him? Well, I'd say she hated him in part because she hated herself. She hated the fact that she had been caught out. She had lost respect for her own person. And whereas Amnon was angry with Tamnar because he had lost respect for her, Potiphar's wife was angry with Joseph because she was angry with herself. But either way, when we play with sexual sin, we're playing with fire. And that's why Solomon said this, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not being burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So that he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. Potiphar's wife got burnt by Joseph's refusal. So using Joseph's code as mere circumstantial evidence, she lets out an almighty scream, and as the sound of her distress resonates throughout her palatial home, all of her servants come running up to her quarters. Notice the tone that she uses with the servants in verse 14. See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us, as though she were one of them. She calls them in on her side. See, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. Notice her reference to her husband in that verse. Notice how she refers to him in the third person. She doesn't respect her husband. She has no respect for him. She has no respect for Joseph. She has no respect for herself. This woman has lost all her dignity. She's lost all her integrity. And fearing that Joseph might now tell all to her husband, she does everything she can to hold on to her place in high society. Joseph is about to lose his reputation. He's about to lose his freedom. But he doesn't lose his testimony. And he leaves with this, his integrity still intact. When Potiphar returns home, his wife goes through the same routine. Notice again her words and how they convey the difficult marriage that they had. Verse 17, the Hebrew servant, she says, which thou has brought unto us came unto me to mock me. Here's what she says. I've been raped and it's all your fault. You brought this fellow in. You brought him in to, to mock me, to humiliate me, to degrade me. Friends, let me say this to you, those of us who are married. When we begin finger-pointing in marriage, our marriage is in trouble. We start saying to the other, it's your fault. If it wasn't for you, if you hadn't, your son is going astray. It's because of the way you brought him up. It's because how you raised him. Our daughter isn't where she ought to be. It's because of how you raised her. And we start pointing the finger at each other. When you do that, you're not fulfilling your role in marriage. Your role in marriage is to build up the other, to encourage the other, to strengthen the other, not to tear down the other. But she's tearing down Potiphar. She says, the Hebrew servant which thou brought into us. He came in to mock me. 
to degrade me. Now, of course, the whole thing is a, is a fabrication. And what happens next shows that even Potiphar had his doubts. Notice that not only was Joseph falsely accused, but now we find he is wrongfully imprisoned in verse 19. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. Now let's think about this. A lot of times we read through our Bibles and we don't really think about things. And I want you to think about who's who in this story. You know, who is Potiphar? Potiphar is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. What did we say of him last week? We said he is the executioner in chief. He's the officer who heads Pharaoh's death squads. Potiphar's wife is obviously his spouse. She holds a position of honor in society as being someone married to a high-profile politician. And what is Joseph? Joseph is a mere slave. He's in Hebrew. He's not even an Egyptian citizen. He's from a foreign land. He's, he's just chattel to be bought and sold. Now, Egypt in ancient times was a nation that was tough on crime. And in particular, it was careless about slaves. What did they care about Hebrew slaves or foreign slaves? Slaves were used to build their palaces. Slaves were used to build their, their grand tombs. So a prominent politician wouldn't take very kindly to a slave who raped his wife. But Potiphar knew his wife. And Potiphar knew Joseph. You see, if Potiphar had had a loving, trusting, healthy relationship with his wife, he would have totally accepted her story at face value. And without a moment's notice, he as chief executioner would have had Joseph put to death. But he didn't have him executed. And verse 19 says there that his wrath was kindled. Potiphar's wrath was kindled. And we tend to read that and believe that his wrath was kindled against Joseph. But actually, his wrath is kindled against his wife. The truth is, he doesn't put much stock in her story. He doesn't put much weight in her account of events. Nevertheless, he's in a bit of a bind. He's on the horns of a dilemma. It's her word against his. And he has to somehow save face before his servants. He has to save face politically. And so he must act in some way. And therefore, he puts Joseph in prison. But he didn't just treat him as a common criminal. Notice he puts him, and it says, in the king's prison. He put him into the place where the king's prisoners were held. That's where political prisoners uh, were incarcerated. And the king's prisoners had a slightly easier regime than common criminals would have had in custody. Now, I said it was slightly easier. I don't want you to believe for one moment it was easy. Look in Psalm 105 for a moment. Psalm 105. And notice verse 17, speaking of Joseph. It says of him, whose feet, in verse 18, 
They hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Now we'll come back to that 19th verse in a moment. But I want you to see that he is bound in this prison. He is put in irons. He is held in fetters. And the word for prison can literally be translated with the word dungeon. And this is what this part of the prison was. Effectively, it was a hole in the ground into which the prisoner was lowered on a harness, much like he would have experienced in the previous pit that his brother had put him, his brothers had put him in. There was no windows. The only daylight that entered in came from an entrance hole to that pit. And here's what we find. Joseph is back where he started. He's back in the pit. Just because you get out of a pit once, friends, it doesn't mean that you don't end up back in a pit again. You see, sometimes life is the pits, isn't it? Do you ever hear somebody say that? Life is the pits. Sometimes it is the pits. You know, uh, my first ministry was in Tala. And Tala was a rough area. Tala was a difficult neighborhood. Uh, there was a lot of tough people lived in Tala. There was a lot of antisocial behavior that went on in Tala. And then I moved from Tala up to North Belfast to Silverstream and Bray Hill. And Silverstream's a tough neighborhood. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was tough uh, to such a degree that, you know, when we were, uh, we were meeting in that church right across the road, there was a Chinese takeaway. Behind the Chinese takeaway was the favorite spot for the UDA to shoot people in the knees when they so choose. So every now and then you'd hear a few bangs coming from the back of the Chinese takeaway and you knew what was going on. And I have a friend. Yes, I do have one. A fellow by the name of Mike Tardivi, wonderful guy. Love him dearly. He's from New Jersey. He was a missionary in the Irish Republic in, uh, in Leash. And Mike said to me when he looked at my pastoral record, how I'd been in Tala and then I'd moved up to North Belfast. He, he had been in Tala and then he came up to North Belfast, took a look. He says, you know what, David? He says, you should, be, you should have a, a ministry called Armpit Ministries. He says, because everywhere you minister is an armpit. He says, you can make a prayer card and you can just have an arm sticking out and your face could be right here, he says. And, and people could support you because you go to all the armpits of the world. Well, I'm glad to say Points Pass is not one of the armpits of the world. And maybe the Lord's been kind to me in the latter days uh, of my ministry. Uh, but you know what? Sometimes life is the pits. And it was the pits for Joseph. And by the way, I want to say I absolutely love ministering in Tala. And I love ministering in Bray Hill. There are some wonderful people in those areas. But sometimes life is the pits. Now, the one overriding question we should be asking at this stage in this story is this. Where is Joseph's God? Where's God in all of this? Here's Joseph, and he has done nothing wrong. In fact, he has done everything right. He's done everything that could be reasonably expected of him. He went out to visit his brothers at his father's request. He was doing his day's work honestly. He was going to bring back a report on them as he was required to do as their overseer. It was they who were in the wrong when they beat him and they threw him into the pit and then they brought him out and sold him into slavery. He didn't complain. He went off the 250 miles further into Egypt 
Egypt. He gets into Potiphar's house where he's bought and he's been treated as a slave. And he again is industrious. He puts in the effort. He is blessed of God there. But nevertheless, you know, he, he's done nothing wrong. He's doing everything right. And then he is seduced or there's an effort of seduction by Potiphar's wife. And he rejects her advances and he rebuffs her temptation. He's done everything that a Christian ought to have done. He's remained pure. He has shown character. He has shown integrity. And as you read this account, you think, well, wait a minute. This isn't right. This fellow shouldn't be in prison. This fellow shouldn't be struggling and suffering the way that he is. It's so unfair. There's no justice in this. If ever there was a time for God to step in and do something for Joseph, surely this is the time. Where is God? You see, it's easy. It's easy to see God in the good things of life. Every time, every now and then on social media, you'll see somebody celebrating a blessing in life. Maybe they've gotten engaged and they'll say, oh, we got engaged. God is good. Or maybe they've bought a new home and they'll show you a picture of their home and they say, God is good. Or they've got a new job and they say, God is good. But what happens when the engagement breaks up? Or what happens when a marriage breaks up? Or what happens when the house burns down? Or what happens when the job is no longer there and I'm on the dole queue? What then? Is God now not good? Does the goodness of God depend upon the circumstances of our lives? Because we can certainly see him in the good things. We can even see him sometimes in the questionable things. But where is God in the dungeon experiences? Where is God when life is the pits? Why is there no word from him? Has he left the room? Is God going to be silent now forever? Let's go back to that verse in Psalm 105 and verse 19 and looking back to that period in history which covers Joseph's life and it says this his feet they hurt with fetters he was laid in iron and listen what it says in verse 19 until the time that his word came the word of the Lord tried him now that's a really important little verse with respect to Joseph's experience until the time that his word came The word of the Lord tried him. Now let me tease that last statement out a little bit by changing this verse just ever so slightly. Let's read it this way. Until the time that his promise came, the promise of the Lord tried him. Until the time that his promise came, the promise of the Lord tried him. In other words, whilst Joseph's dream remained unfulfilled, The promises made in that dream were all he had to go on. Remember, he doesn't have a Bible. You couldn't say to him, hey, Joseph, this works out all right. Have a look at chapter 41 of Genesis. It all all takes an upturn a little while. No, you couldn't say that. He doesn't know that. He's the subject of Genesis. All he has is a dream. All he has is is a ever-distant revelation uh, from God. And so, you, you, you know, for, here's the thing about Joseph. Not for one moment do we see Joseph doubt the promise of God to him. He holds fast. He remains sure. You know, when I was a young fellow, 
I was in the boys' brigade. Their motto then, I expect it still is, was sure and steadfast. That's what Joseph was. He was sure and he was steadfast. What was he sure about? He was sure about the promises of God. Why was he steadfast? Because he held to the word of God. The promise of the Lord tried him and he came out smelling of roses. I wonder, are you encountering a dungeon experience in your life? Is your life in the pits again? What is it that's gripping your life right now? What places your spirit in semi-darkness? Are you bound by the walls of personal anxiety or by disappointment or by loneliness or by bereavement, or illness, or financial difficulty, or some misunderstanding, or personal tragedy, or sorrow. What is it that closes you in, and you feel like God has forsaken me? God isn't with me. God isn't speaking to me. I can't hear from him. How are you handling it? Or more importantly, how are you letting the Lord handle it? Joseph held fast to the promises of God. Where was God? Well, verse 21 tells us where he was. Notice he was falsely accused. He was wrongly imprisoned. But then finally, he was royally appointed. But the Lord was with Joseph. There's where the Lord was. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Now by standing against sin, first of all, Joseph lost his precious coat. And you say, well, why does that even matter? Why? It's just a coat. That's the last physical connection he has with his beloved father. He's lost his coat. He's lost his job. He's lost, to some degree, his reputation. He has lost his opportunity. He has lost his freedom. Uh, But here's what he didn't lose. He didn't lose the presence of the Lord. It says right there, but the Lord was with Joseph. That's the key phrase again. You see, he had been with him when his brothers put him in the pit. He was with him on the caravan trail going out to Egypt. He was with him when he was set out on the slave market to be bought. He was with him when he was brought to Potiphar's home. He was with him when Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him. He was with him when he was falsely accused and wrongfully imprisoned he was with him in the cell of the king's prisoners at jail with him and the same is true of every believer the Lord is always with us listen to what Paul says about his prison experiences look in Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment Ephesians chapter 3 you see Paul tells us that he himself was the prisoner of the Lord In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, he says this, and this is one of his so-called prison epistles. Understand, Paul wrote this epistle from prison. He says, for this cause I, Paul, notice what he calls himself, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He's not the prisoner of the emperor. He's not the prisoner of Rome. 
He's not the prisoner of, of uh, Tiberius or Nero or, or any other Caesar. He's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Likewise, in 2 Timothy, in chapter 1 and, and verse 8, he says to this young pastoral apprentice, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. In Philemon, chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, our brother. In verse 9 of that epistle, that the communication of the faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. He's recognizing, uh, sorry, it's not verse 9, it's verse, I've, I've lost my verse there. Anyway, verse, verse 1 is clear. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul was the Lord's prisoner, and the Lord was with him. Look in Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, and I want you to look at verses 10 and 11. This is where Paul is caught up in a tumult on the campus of the temple when the Jews move against him. And, it's, and they're, they're, they're seeking uh, his execution. In verse 10 it says, And there arose a great dissension. The chief captain, that is the Roman soldier, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Now notice what verse 11 says. And the night following, the Lord stood by him in prison and said, Be of good cheer. The Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul speaks about an enemy by the name of Alexander the coppersmith. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou were also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, that is at my first hearing in court, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. So he says, look, I was abandoned in the dock. I was standing there being accused of things and nobody was speaking up for me. But notice what he says in verse 17. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered like Daniel out of the mouth of the lion. Paul says it over and over again. The Lord was with me. I'm the Lord's prisoner. I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. The Lord stood by me. The Lord cheered me up. And Joseph too wasn't, the, wasn't Potiphar's prisoner or Pharaoh's prisoner, but he was the Lord's prisoner. And the first thing you read about him in the prison was that the Lord was with Joseph. And friends, the Lord is with you. You may say, well, I don't feel his presence. Well, our feelings or our senses don't change the truth of God's word. He has promised never to leave us 
nor to forsake us. You know, one of the greatest books and most influential books that I ever read as a Christian was Richard Vermbrandt's book, Tortured for Christ. If you've never read that book, I recommend that you get it. They're selling it for peanuts in the ICA. Uh, I saw it the other day. Uh, you know, Go and get yourself a copy of Tortured for Christ. It is a very, very inspirational book. It tells the story of Pastor Vermbrandt, who was for 14 years held as a prisoner in a Romanian prison during the time of the uh, Soviet Union and the Communist Empire, and how he and others suffered in that prison. But, you know, here's the remarkable thing, and there are some amazing stories in that book. The remarkable thing was that even those, though those people were tortured and starved and beaten, and they were isolated, and, and they were, had their Bibles taken from them and were being put through all kinds of hardship, they never lost their joy in the Lord. Persecution strengthened them. Do you know what? We in the West at that time were praying that the persecution would lift off our Eastern Bloc brothers. Do you know what they were praying? They were praying that persecution would come to their Western brothers so that we might get right with God. Isn't that powerful? Because they found in persecution the Lord was with them in a very special way. And they actually saw it as a means to blessing. Here's the thing I want you to see. I want you to understand that in Joseph's life, as well as our lives, nothing happens by mistake. Joseph was in this prison not because of Potiphar's wife, not because Potiphar was weak and was a politician. He wasn't there because of some you know, miscarriage of justice. He wasn't there because somebody somewhere goofed. He was there because it was God's will for him to be there. His imprisonment was the means that God would use to bring him ultimately into the presence of Pharaoh. Now here's the thing you really need to get a hold of. Joseph's enslavement and his imprisonment was all part of his schooling in advance of God's purpose for his life. Now you and I know how this book ends. You've read the book of Genesis and I've read the book of Genesis and we know what direction this story is going to take. We know that Joseph is going to be promoted. We know that he's going to be made prime minister over Egypt. We know he's going to be put over the seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. We know all of that lies ahead. We know where this story is going even though Joseph did not. He's going to manage the land of Egypt during seven years of plenty and seven years of poverty. Now think about it. He was sold into slavery. What was he during his period in slavery? He was a steward over Potiphar's plenty. He was a steward over Potiphar's plenty. He learned how to handle wealth. Then what happens? He's put into prison. What happens in prison? Well, the, the chief of the prison, the, 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 the uh, keeper of the prison, put everything into Joseph's hands. Well, what did he learn in the prison? He learned how to handle little. He learned how to make things stretch. He learned how to be frugal. 
He learned uh, how, to, how to be fair in his dealings with the other prisoners. You see what God was doing? You see, in the Potiphar's house, he was steward over plenty. And in the prison, he was a steward over poverty. And God was training him and preparing him. Why? For the salvation of Egypt? In part, yes, but primarily for the salvation of Israel. God was going to save his chosen people by the hands of Joseph in due season. And I want you to notice in verse 20 a little phrase which is very telling. It says Joseph was put into a place, notice what it says, where the king's prisoners were bound. Now in the primary sense, the king in question is the pharaoh of the time. But in a secondary and in a spiritual level, the king in question is the Lord. You see, he's the Lord's prisoner. He's in the place where the Lord's prisoner was bound. Joseph was there because God wanted him to be there. And in a very real way, he was the king's prisoner. Which leads us to this conclusion. That nothing that happens in your life or my life happens by mistake. We might not always understand it. We might not see how it fits in in the jigsaw of life. But God does. And the word accident, the word accident is not in God's vocabulary. Nothing happens from God's perspective by accident. Accident is a word that expresses human experience. But accidents are never in God's reckoning. God is never taken by surprise. He never says, oh, I didn't think that was going to happen. No, he knows what's going to happen. He knew it from eternity past. And he's working out his own purposes in and through it. Why then do we struggle with dungeon experiences? Because unlike Joseph, we fail to see the purposes of God or hold fast to the promises of God in the midst of dungeon experiences. When we are facing inexplicable or unjust circumstances, we have to realize that God is, is, is going to do something through the affliction we're experiencing, that he's permitted it for our good ultimately and for his glory ultimately. The difficulties of life are designed, friends, to feed our growth. And whatever happens to us, and however miserable it might make us at the time, God is in control. Now that leaves us with a choice. We can live in despair, believing our troubles serve no particular good. Or we can hold faithfully to God's promises, realizing he is sovereign over all. We can look to God and expectantly go forward, anticipating good to come. When we look to God in every situation and circumstance, here's what we do. We exchange despair for hope. We exchange despair for hope. Why wasn't Joseph in despair? Why wasn't he on his knees crying? 
Why was he in a fetal position in the cell, you know, telling the, his fellow prisoners what a horrible experience had been his since his brothers sold him into slavery? Why did he tell them about the injustice of Potiphar's wife? Why did he tell them about the weakness of Potiphar? Why did he sit there and whine and moan and complain and cry? Why? Because Joseph kept an eye to the promises of God. And he thought to himself, you know what? I don't know how this is working out, but I know it is working out. And God is going to keep his word and there will be glory for me. There will be glory for me. And so he exchanged his despair for God's hope. And the choice is ours today. The choice is yours today. Yes, you can give in to despair if that's where you want to go. But I hope it's not where you want to go. I hope you'll lay hold upon the word and promises of God and exchange your despair for his hope. May God help us when we find ourselves in the king's prison to be more like Joseph. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts.